Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and hosted on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Eras, and today I've got a bit of a curveball for us on, uh, on this week's episode. We were scheduled to have Ezra Institute fellow James White of Apologia and Alpha and Omega Ministries on today, and we were going to talk about Reformed Thomism or Reformed Scholasticism. And Lord willing, we'll still have that conversation as early as next week, but he got back to us, something suddenly came up, and he's not able to join us uh, remotely today. So what we're doing instead is jumping down into the vault, and we've got a previously unaired episode, a a brand new unaired content from Joe Boot uh, that was uh, previously delivered at a, uh, a Christian medical conference. And this is a distinctly Christian view of the healing arts and healing profession. And in this lecture, Joe makes the point that much of modern thought regarding medicine is a study in reductionism. It's a reduction to the the biotic or the biological function of life that neglects the other aspects, uh, neglects the unity of the whole person as created in Jesus Christ. And Joe offers a, uh, a comprehensive view of, of medicine and of healing. We're going to get into that right now. Before I do, let me just make a quick announcement, a reminder that the Mission of God Canada Conference is coming up soon in just a couple of weeks. Uh, that'll be December 10th at Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. You can visit EzraInstitute.com to get your tickets. Without further ado, here's Joe. And in this session, I want to deal with a distinctly a Christian vision for medicine. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, this is what we read. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commands and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. As we uh, begin this, I want to orient us to a critical biblical foundation. Because the first question that presents itself in our time when we reflect on this idea of a Christian vision for medicine is really the same question that imposes itself on us regarding every other vocation like law or politics or economics. Is there such a thing as a Christian vision for medicine? Is there a distinctly Christian view of healing? Aren't all doctors doctors and dentists just trying to make people feel better? What is it that would really set apart a Christian perspective on medicine? Uh, What might help uh, shape, inspire and inform the practice of medicine for believers? And it's those questions that I want to address in my lectures uh, today. What is it that really orients a Christian view of medicine? Is it just that doctors and dentists and nurses have prayer meetings? 
at the hospital and at a Bible study, or is there something more to a distinctly Christian perspective? First of all, then, I want to talk about the basic structure of the Bible and the creation, fall, redemption pattern of Scripture and how that informs our understanding of the medical task. First of all, then, creation. The most fundamental and perhaps most important thing that we can say to begin with is that Christians should recognize the world as creation. Sounds obvious, sounds elementary. But this is obviously not true for everyone who practices medicine. The fullness of the biblical idea of creation is not simply that God made all the creatures that exist. After all, um, our children and young children can believe in creation that God made everything, but they wouldn't yet be able to work out the implications of that for medicine. It also includes the uh, idea of creation, not simply that God made the creatures then, but that he ordained order for the life and functioning of all creatures. That is, there is a creational law word. In other words, not only the origination and constant dependency of all things upon the word of God for existence is in view with the idea of creation, but the proper ordering and healthy functioning of all things is related to God's commands and ordinances understood in the light of scripture. The biblical view of creation then involves both command and promise or a promise command. And I found this a very helpful way of looking at the biblical understanding of creation. There is the command of God to be, let there be. And using this metaphor of hearing, there is a response in all creation to God's command word. Creation includes God's law for creation and then the lawful response of creatures. Because God's command both enables and guarantees all existence to be according to its own nature, that is after its kind, it is at the same time a promise of continuance. In short, everything that is exists as answering, answering God's promise command. To be indicates its continuance, the continuance of things after their kind. Think about the way creation answers in Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the depths fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, 
creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. So in that psalm, notice that his command is the creation law word in verse 5. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And that establishes everything in terms of a decree or promise of their abiding in verse 6. So this law word holds not only for non-human creatures, as we see in that psalm, where sun and moon respond to the command word in praise and snow and clouds fulfill his word, but also for kings and peoples, men and women, old and young. This all relates us back to the text referred to previously in Exodus at the beginning. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. So we see actually that the Bible maintains the integral unity of all God's laws and norms for the inanimate world, for uh, animals, plants and animals, for the stars of the heavens and for human beings. His command and decree for non-human creatures as well as his laws and ordinances which normatively guide every facet of human life and society are all aspects of creation's response to God's all-embracing law word, which expresses his creational will. His word contains his kingdom will for being human. And our obedience to his command has an impact, therefore, on our total being individually and as human societies, including the health of our bodies, because ultimately the Lord is our healer. As the psalmist says in Psalm 107, 20, he sent his word and healed them. He sent his word and healed them. The root law for human life, which branches out into all the other laws of God for human conduct, is that of love for God with all our being and the love of neighbor as much as we love ourselves. So to live and work in service of healing as a doctor or a dentist is an aspect of our calling to obediently respond to the law of the kingdom, love of God and neighbor. So creation is much more than a belief that sometime back in the past, God kicked the bull and got the world going. It concerns all of his laws and ordinances for every aspect of human life and the life of all creation. But then of course, there's a second aspect to understand what it really means to have a Christian view of medicine. And that's the fall, creation, fall. So to make sense actually of the very concept of healing, it is not just creation that we have to think about if we're gonna get a Christian perspective on medicine. It actually involves, the idea of healing actually involves the recognition of a problem in creation, 
of an antithesis at work in the world between sin and salvation, right and wrong, good and evil, wholeness and disease. Scripture makes plain that because of humanity's disobedient response to the law word of God, we fell into sin and ruin and creation itself was subject to futility, Paul says in Romans 8. The curse fell upon a now groaning creation because man, as Lord of creation, was made subject to the righteous wrath of God. Now, God's laws and norms, his creational laws and norms, still hold for all the entities and structures of creation. But a directional antithesis has been introduced into human life that affects all of creation. That is, for or against God. That's the fall. And because of the fall, the idea of healing, the concept of healing and restoration is introduced into human understanding. And then thirdly, redemption. Redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. In the scriptural worldview, there's this additional vital component to building a Christian vision of medicine. Salvation in Christ. As believers, we know that Christ, our creator, is also our redeemer from sin, death, and the devil, and has made known to us the path of life. He redeems us from the curse and restores us to full obedience to his kingdom will. So in principle, we are new creatures and part of the renewed creation. We have the, we have the first fruits of the renewed and redeemed creation. Now, biblically, the scope of redemption is the scope of both creation and the fall. As such, all of life manifests this directional distinction within God's good, though fallen creation. We are for or against Christ and his law word in all domains and all areas of life. As such, we can be just or unjust, believing or unbelieving, loving or unloving, responsible or irresponsible, faithful or unfaithful, logical or illogical, frugal or wasteful, and so on. This directional distinction inescapably has a bearing on medicine. Christ's work actually frees us from the creation-wide dominion and power of sin, calling us back from evil to respond to God's word in obedience, in faith and reverence in all terrains of life. As God says to humankind through Job, in Job 28, 28, the fear of the Lord is this, wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. That's the foundation. Now, this is not to say that the Christian doctor and unbelieving doctor live in different worlds. Quite the contrary, actually. We all live and work in God's creation order. It is not creation itself that separates us. It is the opposing directional choices, motives out of which we live in response to God's promise command 
that makes the difference. In other words, Christians and non-Christians don't do different things. They do the same things differently. They don't do different things. They do the same things differently. We are led by different life motives that spring from distinct responses to God. Salvation, therefore, is not about moving away from certain areas or terrains of life in creation, like moving away from the arts, if you're a Christian, or moving away from politics, or moving away from medicine into a spiritual realm, like the church, for example. It doesn't mean that at all. It means moving into all of these areas of life, living out and proclaiming the kingdom of God. The scriptures do not localize evil in any area of creation, but actually in the heart of man and in the direction out of which we live, the center, the heart being the center and focal point of our being. This direction will manifest itself in every area of our lives. And we see that now, we see this incredible conflict now raging in the area of medicine, a directional distinction. This implies, of course, that as Christians, we have to reject what I'm going to call all metaphysical forms of soteriology. That's doctrines of salvation, where human philosophies seek to localize evil in some aspect of created reality, like the material world or social hierarchies or authority structures like the family and church or a certain ethnicity or economic relations or the employer class, or law, or tradition, or the nation, or whatever else. These offer salvation by leading humankind into another domain of safety away, away from the so-called domain of evil. These counterfeit offers of salvation typically overestimate, or perhaps we might say misvalue, a wonderful part of God's creational diversity, an entity or structure within it, for example, while depreciating the other aspects of creation and idolizing or absolutizing them as the object of their fascination. We'll unpick that a little bit more shortly. But on this basis, as we look at history, everything from economic and social structures to classes, people groups, the individual, arts, culture, medical science, biological life, human will, language, even emotion, matter and energy have all become idols in our culture, have all been idolized at different points to one degree or another. Christians must therefore reject any effort to find an ultimate point of explanation, that is of origin, or salvation within creation itself, within the universe itself. Instead, we recognize the reality of creation, fall, redemption, and realize that salvation cannot be found in any domain, aspect, or entity in creation. It's found in Christ alone, in God himself. This fact is closely related to the second reason why we can and must have a distinctly Christian view of medicine. So first of all, because of creation and the way God has established and ordained his laws and norms for creation, creation, fall, redemption, the scriptural paradigm. The second reason 
secular reductionism versus Christian integration. Because of their denial of creation, as I've described it above, modern secular and pagan views of reality that dominate our culture today all suffer from the problem of reductionism, marking a clear distinction between the Christian view of medical and dental care from all others. So what is reductionism? What do we mean by that? Well, typically, although there are less common varieties, it is essentially the view that the phenomenon we experience in the world can ultimately be explained in terms of physics, in terms of elementary physical laws. The Greek philosopher, the uh, Christian philosopher, I should say, Henk Goetzemer, explains the implications for living things. This is what he says, and I quote, the explanation of living organisms is pursued in terms of an accidental organization of complex molecular structures. Mental phenomena are taken to be reducible to neurophysiological processes. Religious faith and moral conduct have been explained as a form of behavior that exists because it conveys a selective advantage in the struggle for survival. So you see here how uh, an explanation of living organisms, of the, the mental life of people, and even of their moral and religious life is being explained away in terms of uh, physical laws. An accidental organization of complex molecular structures is the technical way in which he puts that. So although increasingly in the sciences there is a recognition that one cannot reduce our descriptions of reality conceptually, that is at the, the greater levels of complexity, to the physical, nonetheless, argues Goetzema, and I quote again, the conviction remains that all of reality ultimately is of a physical nature. The different levels with their specific properties are still seen as complex organizations of physical constituents. In other words, there remains what we can call an ontological reductionism, even if on the surface we encounter in the sciences today explanatory non-reductionism. So we explain things using different uh, fields, and yet underlying it, the religious idea, is still uh, an ontological reductionism. This sets aside, basically, our common sense understanding of the world. That gives priority, and, and then goes on to give priority to hard naturalism, sometimes called materialism or physicalism. Everything is merely physical, and distinctions that we experience arise from the accidental arrangement of things with simply different levels of complexity. Now, for many people in our culture, this explanation seems plausible. And the reason for this, the reason it seems plausible, is that there really is a physical aspect or function to everything we experience. But then there is also a numerical, a spatial, a kinematic, that's to do with motion, a sensitive, a logical, a historical aspect to everything we experience. So the reality of a physical function present in all phenomena 
is not persuasive in reducing all of reality to differing levels of complexity in the arrangement of elementary particles. And indeed, physics and physical theories have never made biology, chemistry, psychology, economics, logic, history, surplus to requirements in the curriculum of the university. These subjects are all still critically important. In fact, these subjects continue to show considerable independence from each other. Now, over the centuries, due to the reductionist tendency of pagan thought, because it denies the creator-creature distinction and God's creational laws and norms, the human person as a phenomenon has been explored and thought about from various angles, from various modes of explanation. And this has led to attempts to explain human beings in terms of various isolated aspects or combinations of aspects of reality. So we have seen versions of the genetic or biotic self, the material self, the historical self, the rational self, the moral self, and various others, all searching for the essence of what it means to be human. But all these forms of reduction fail to do justice to the human person and to human experience. Let's take, a, let's take an illustration from the field of medicine and the human experience of pain. I'm sure most of you as doctors and dentists uh, are dealing with this all of the time, especially in the dental chair. Um, but when you get somebody coming to your surgery, to, to your doctor's surgery or, or to the dentist, it's often because of the experience of pain. Now, from a medical standpoint, doctors know that pain has some kind of physiological basis, even if we cannot always track it down. But acknowledging this physiological basis is not the same as saying pain can be accounted for and understood in purely physiological terms. Because consciousness and the ability to feel are presupposed in the concept of pain. Pain may be rooted in physiology, but it's not identical with it. In many instances, the physiological traits of pain may in themselves be totally harmless physiologically, yet be the real cause of suffering in a patient. As Gertzmer also explains, and I quote, pain cannot be described by physiological concepts alone. Neurophysiology can be helpful for the understanding of pain because specific neurophysiological structures are identified on the basis of their relationship to the phenomenal pain. To discover these relationships though, the concept of pain as such is basic. For that reason, Physiological concepts that as such lack the element of feeling can never replace the concept of pain in which this element is essential. Human beings then, what we're saying is, and as Christians I hope we know, cannot be reduced to their biology, their physiology or their genetics, even when considering an apparently simple concept like pain. And we all know uh, people, you all have colleagues, who somehow though nonetheless want to reduce human life to this. In a similar way, the human person cannot be reduced in the other direction to a higher 
spiritive aspect of thinking or feeling where the biotic or biological structures, where our biotic and biological structures as though a as though human beings are a, a spiritual mental thing as my essence, as the essence of my person is imprisoned in a biological structure called the body. Uh, we can't ignore the body and the biological structures and deem them less relevant in considering human wholeness and well-being. So you can't reduce the human person backwards to the material, the biotic, neither can you reduce the human person upwards to a mental, spiritive, emotional aspect and treat the body as unimportant in human wellness and wholeness. When we think of a healthy emotional life, for example, emotional feeling cannot be reduced to any physiological structure, for example, but we know that the thyroid gland and the iodine responsible for the internal secretion of the thyroid gland hormone play an important role in people's mood and sense of well-being, which you would all know when treating people with hyperactive thyroids and the implications of that uh, medically and emotionally. Because these structures operate as part of the integrated functioning of the human being. So there you have, you look upwards towards the mental, emotional, spiritive aspect of the human person, and yet it's radically connected to the biotic physiological structures of the human body. The Christian philosopher Danny Strauss has pointed out, and I quote, the foot, the hand, or the leg of a human being is never purely physically, biotically, or sensorially structured. The entire human personality embracing all interwoven substructures is expressed in every part of the body. Therefore, it is impossible for medical and nursing practice to reduce a person to a purely biotic entity." End quote. Now, uh, some of that can sound quite abstract and quite philosophical. So let me try and uh, illustrate this problem of reductionism uh, and draw it out with the illustration, uh, the with the, the helpful illustration, I think, of the concept of a car, of a car. The reductionist view of reality that has had such an impact on our view of health and medicine today tends to reduce what is essential to a car. We can say that it's ontology to the materials with which it is constructed, like metal, rubber, glass, leather. Those were the things I could think of off the top of my head when I was thinking about my car. In other words, a car is viewed as essentially the specific complex organization of physical materials able to move between given spaces because you can drive a car. Now in itself, this observation is accurate because basic to the being of a car is the arrangement of its physical components. But when reduced to this, we could never understand the full meaning or significance of a car referred to by its concept. What a car truly is, is not actually defined by the material parts from which it's constructed, but by the specific functions it has to serve, which in fact determine its construction. 
The concept of the car implies a specific structure built in such a way that it can transport people, especially family, from one place to another, safe from outside elements and minor impacts in a private space at considerable speed. Unless you're in my dad's car when it's not considerable speed. Now, with the advancements in technology, it's now also a place to make phone calls, conduct business, listen to music, commute to work, transport your friends in relative comfort and ease. The amazing variety of cars available are designed to serve variations in the same basic functionality to maximize, in some cases, its appearance, its speed or space and comfort. The point being the physical materials are subordinate to the primary functions the car has to serve. This shows that the rules directing the organization of the materials for a car are more important and basic to what it is to be a car than the materials themselves. This becomes clear but from the fact that you could actually make a car out of many different types of material. You could make a car out of plastic. Uh, there are all kinds of, kinds of concept cars made from different materials. But carness, if there were such a thing, carness is recognized by its function. So for example, a car has physical parts one can count and differentiate. It takes up space, it's able to move. Some of its components are derived from biological organisms like the rubber and leather but its meaning and function cannot be reduced to these natural elements. A car is not simply a physical thing existing from numerous, numerous naturally occurring elements. There is a very human logic required in the construction and fashioning of a car. Cars are also historical artifacts with a long history of development stemming from the early invention of the wheel, and they're shaped by the technological stage of advancement and cultural fashions of their era. That's why classics are collectible for a good reason. Cars go by various names and brands which have become part of the common furniture of human language. The primary function of a car is actually social because it's a means of transport for various forms of human interaction. Taking children to school, going to work, going on vacation or to the golf course, etc. Car racing has also become a means of social entertainment. And cars can also confer a certain social status on the owner. This social function is closely related to the economic function of a car. They have a certain value. Cars can be expensive or cheap, being a major investment for most people, second only to their house, and they can be bought and sold and their depreciation when they're new, as soon as you drive that new car off the lot, is very rapid. Cars are also, though, aesthetic objects, because people like a good-looking and well-made car, to the point that the car has become, in some cases, like a work of art for showrooms. The car also has a juridical object function. They are owned by people, and car theft is a major problem that frequently leads to legal charges, as well as disputes over legal liability regarding their insurance. Cars also function, though, in the ethical, moral aspect of life, because we are obligated to drive responsibly. 
and respect other drivers. The car can be deadly if misused, so the moral obligation associated with their use is profound. We may also lend our car to help others in need or teach our teenager to drive in our precious car because we love our kids. Finally, in some cases, cars become an obsession, taking on a quasi-religious significance. We have all seen that person religiously cleaning and polishing their BMW every Sunday morning, or the enthusiast who literally lives for his cars. All this reveals that the meaning and function of a car cannot be reduced to its physical components. And I know that's a fairly long illustration, but I wanted to walk through these different aspects for this reason. In a similar way, if we reduce the human person to our biotic or physical components or any other aspect, we cannot understand the true meaning, significance and function of what it means to be human. And if we cannot understand the meaning, significance and function of human beings, how can we adequately restore people to proper functioning, to health? The laws and norms that direct human life in its many-sided aspects are an integral unity, which means the economic or social aspect of human life, as just two examples, can have just as profound an effect on health as our diet or our exercise regime. This has been confirmed by studies showing the drop in life expectancy from job loss and the stress of economic hardship or social isolation. Interestingly, we cannot even deduce complex biological phenomena like reproduction and growth, which is controlled by our DNA, from physical laws. In fact, describing them requires language and concepts that are not part of physics. And the same is true of our mental states. We have observed that they have a physical basis, but realities and experiences like learning or human will and intentions cannot be expressed in the language of physics. The structures and laws for these different aspects of reality have a unique character of their own, meaning that diverse laws and norms determine the properties of different aspects of reality. These laws don't contradict each other, properly understood, but they resist all efforts to reduce them to one another. So, for example, the moves a player makes on a chessboard can't be accounted for solely in terms of physical laws, but are dependent on the rules of chess and the mental intention of the player. For Christians, then, the laws and norms for reality, for creation and human life, are established by God's creation word, which is where we began, and there is no true understanding of the human person without taking the mystery of creation into account. These laws are the very conditions necessary for the existence of things. This implies that all laws and norms are not the byproduct of physical things, but are presupposed in their very existence and structure. Every physical thing has within it, a, it, it within them is presupposed the reality of law as the condition of their existence. All things then exist as answering, responding to the word of God. Now let me wrap this up 
by trying to uh, highlight the relevance of this for some contemporary discussions in medicine, some contemporary discussions that are facing us culturally. So my final point is the contemporary reductionist assault on being human. With this context in mind, we can just highlight briefly a few specific challenges facing Christians and notice where reductionism is at work and needs to be combated vigorously by Christians in the medical and dental profession. What I've argued so far is that a Christian view of medicine is possible because we have a distinctly Christian cosmology grounded in the biblical teaching concerning creation. On this view, things and events are delimited and they're directed by the various dimensions or many-sidedness of created reality and God's laws and norms for these dimensions which resist all attempts at reductionism. That is trying to account for reality, trying to account for human life and experience in terms of one or a combination of two or three of these aspects. So with reductionism in view, let's consider just for a moment euthanasia, perhaps the most concerning issue for doctors in Canada at present. I know it's a real struggle for many of you and uh, the conscience issues for doctors are, are a big issue right now, battles in the courts and so on. And we've just seen the expansion of MAID uh, that's been uh, approved by our Houses of Parliament. So euthanasia, I want to use as an example, as a primary case in point of reductionism. Clearly, the concepts of health, of illness and of death refer primarily to the biotic aspect of our existence. That's true. Life and death themselves, if you think about it, though, are not things. They're not entities but they are an important facet of some entities that have many other dimensions to them. One of life's mysteries is that living things are made up physically of dead things. So no one would claim, for example, that atoms are alive. In biology, though, we use concepts like procreation, growth, survival, dying, and so on. But rocks and minerals don't live and die. Plants and animals and human beings live, grow, procreate, and die. There are, however, important analogies of life and death in other aspects of our experience. So we speak of social life, one's social life, or social decay. We speak of cultural life, and cultural death and decay. We speak of emotional life, our emotional life, and also of a death wish. We speak of legal life and a legal death. And we speak of spiritual life and spiritual death and so on. So although life and death are qualified biotically in our understanding, Dying is a process that functions simultaneously in many aspects of life, not just our biology. It's this multifaceted character of reality, by virtue of creation, that euthanasia supporters and promoters either ignore or don't understand. 
we are not just subject to biotic laws. Unlike animals, we are also subject to juridical laws and norms. As legal subjects, Persons cannot be treated as merely biochemical organisms that can be disposed of as inconvenient. Dying is therefore also a legal question. And the public, as a public legal order, have a public legal interest in the bodily integrity, that is the life, of each citizen. At the same time, because life is more than its legal function, since we're also religious and cultural and emotional and biological and moral beings, human beings can never be reduced to legal objects either, whether of individuals or of the state, as slaves were treated, like legal property. Nor can an individual dispose of their life like putting aside a legal object not only because persons are more than legal objects, but because legality is a public matter which affects the bodily integrity of everyone. Moreover, if people are reduced to the legal aspect of life, in terms, let's say, of charter provisions, in terms of a ruling of the Supreme Court, then to exercise legal rights, one would need to be of legal capacity. In such a case, people incapable of executing those rights can have no subjective right over their lives, implying they could be arbitrarily used or even killed. If you can reduce people to a legal object, then they can legally be dispensed with if they are deemed to lack legal capacity. There are still more considerations here. Not only is dying a biotic and legal matter, it is also subject to moral norms for reality by virtue of creation that demand honouring the dignity of the human person created in the image of God. And this is why euthanasia promoters had to co-opt the word dignity and redefine its meaning, which is why we now speak of death with dignity. The moral or ethical aspect of our lives is tied directly to the faith aspect of our experience and the religious root of our lives as creatures oriented to God and therefore entirely in his hands. With the moral and faith aspect of life taken into account, it becomes very clear that God alone determines the destiny and duration of human life. Because human beings are a unity and not a simple bipartite union of a material substance and a soul substance, which was essentially a Greek, not a Christian idea. Euthanasia is not a process of releasing a imprisoned soul from their body. We are actually killing a person as a unity. The heart or spirit of everyone in a state of brokenness when the outer man is wasted away is in the hands of God and that is God's mystery. And there is also a social aspect to death that involves the temporal severing of family ties. The consequences of death for those family and friends left behind can be devastating and have an enormous impact on health and even life expectancy for a lonely widow or widower. 
To rob family and friends of precious time with someone sick, dying or desiring to die is the height of cruelty. The human person is not an isolated individual, but a social being born into family with a relational meaning. No individual has the right to take their own life or demand their own death as though they exist in existential isolation from the rest of humanity or from God himself. And in addition, there is a cultural aspect to our lives, shaped constantly by our worldview or our faith life. Cultural practices unfold in terms of a vision of ultimate reality. Bound as we are to cultural norms for a historical development, which scripture calls the kingdom of God, human beings have a cultural obligation to the past and the future. What we are now doing in Canadian culture and other parts of the West is terminating life considered by either the state or the individual to be worthless and pointless. The tragedy is that with de-Christianization has come a reversion to pagan cultural attitudes to sickness and death. With a secular worldview reducing human beings to biochemical objects with sense organs, possessing no more intrinsic value than a pig or a dog, we have gradually created a legal apparatus that allows us to justify, notice the word justify, which is a legal term, suicide and killing by simultaneously reducing life to a legal object to be dispensed with and disposed of at will. The killing of malformed children, the seriously diseased and aged is what the Spartans and ancient Germans did in the pagan world and it only recurred in the modern world until very recent legal developments in the last few years in Nazi Germany, in the Nazi state. Most people don't see the obvious contradiction involved in on the one hand reducing human beings to animals, to biotic sensitive objects, and on the other creating law in the juridical aspect of life, which cannot be accounted for in terms of the biotic, since plants and animals don't have law courts because they're not subjects in the juridical aspect of reality. They're not subject to God's norms and laws for, for legal life. And so this whole idea that uh, we can reduce human beings to animals and on the other create law and then destroy life by reducing persons to legal objects. So are we biotic objects or are we legal objects? Or are we just a combination of both? We should recognize that it isn't problematic for someone to be kept alive who may be psychically dead, but biotically alive. That again shows you that dying is not reducible to one aspect of reality. We're able to artificially keep somebody biotically alive even when they may be psychically dead. That isn't euthanasia. We also know there's a real difference between making someone comfortable in the dying process, that's called palliative care, and deliberately shortening their life or even killing them purposefully because they at some point requested it. At any rate, the failure to protect life in our time, typically shrouded in language of health and dignity, is rooted in a religious failure to recognize the many-sided character of life and death. 
Let me conclude by saying this. I've tried to show that the root of differences of approach to critical medical questions lies not in simple pragmatic matters, but in, a fund, but in fundamental religious beliefs. There is a Christian approach to medicine because we recognize that things and events are not isolated from one another. Everything is necessarily related to everything else because everything coheres with everything else in God's creation. In turn, all of creation is entirely dependent at every moment on the powerful and sustaining word of God. True insight into reality and into a Christian view of health requires attention to this non-reductionist character of creation. Now, this critique that I only took one illustration because of time, but this, this critique of reductionism at work in our healthcare today could be applied to abortion, which again denies the God-given dignity of life and its religious root in Christ from conception, while reducing the pre-born human person to a biotic clump of tissue with no capacity to exercise legal rights and therefore disposable as a piece of property, a legal and biological object. A related problem of reductionism is manifest in other cultural medical crises like transgenderism. Here, the biotic reality of being made male or female is minimized or totally denied, whereby the human person is reduced to the inner will the thought or emotion of an individual in total defiance of every other lawful aspect of life to which human beings are subject. The transgender conception asserts, I feel, therefore, I am. That's reductionism. The lingual aspect of life is then used to create a new identity through language repetition. That's why you're made to constantly repeat it that proceeds to generate a legal and then cultural fiction, which must be recognized by all. In my workshop, I'm going to address the reductionist tendency of lockdown prescriptions from medical officers in the name of public health. But at any rate, one can see in these controversial areas of healthcare and medicine today, there is a struggle for Christians against reductionism. The uniqueness of the Christian perspective is the scriptural emphasis on the unity of the whole person as created in Jesus Christ. As the philosopher Danny Strauss has noted, and with this citation I close, from a biblical perspective, being human is not exhausted by any aspect or structure of temporal reality. The radical and central unity of being human touches the root, the religious center, of a human person, the heart. Thank you very much for your time and attention.